Okay, y'all turn to your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, 30 through 37. Are you ready? Here we go. How do you measure greatness? Michael Jordan. Yes, right? Six NBA world champion titles, two. He did three, and then he took two years off and did three more. So realistically, he could have had eight NBA titles. Uh, he had five MVP awards. If, you were to, if I were to speed read all his awards and accolades and honors, it would take over 10 minutes. In the official NBA website under Jordan's bio, this is what it says. It says, by acclamation, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. How do you measure greatness? William Shakespeare, the greatest writer in the English language, the greatest dramatist the world has ever seen. Uh, he created over 38 plays that are translated to every major living language in the world. His plays have been uh, reproduced and done by more uh, than any other composer or playwright in the history of the world. Um, at, and he retired at 49 years of age. So he surpassed surpassing achievements of which the world has yet to see at the age of 49. You know, when you think about that, that's really depressing. <laughs> I got one more year to make my mark. Oh, my word. All right. He was, quote, hailed not of an age, but for all time. How do you measure greatness? How about Mother Teresa? She was ethnically Albanian. Religiously, she was an Indian Roman Catholic nun. Uh, she founded Missionaries of Charity, which consisted of 4,500 sisters in 133 countries. She ran hospices and homes for people with HIV, AIDS, leprosy, tuberculosis. She ran soup kitchens, counseling programs, orphanages and schools. Her uh, sisters took vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. And the fourth vow was this, wholehearted and free service to the poorest of the poor. She won the 1979 Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, she is currently, she's deceased, but she's currently on the path in her church to becoming a saint. I'm told all she needs is a second miracle and it's done, right? In the Gallup poll in 1999, she was at the top of the list for the most widely admired people of the 20th century. How do you measure greatness? Achievement, some measurement of achievement, success, some measurement of honor and morality and integrity, uh, some measurement of being loved and respected, even feared by others. How do you measure greatness? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Mark 9, 30 through 37. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest? And he sat down and called the twelve. And they said to them, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child 
in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of God. Hmm. Y'all take your seat. Hmm. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for your word. We ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would make clear uh, to our minds what's going on here. And that by your spirit, you'd make it real to our hearts. So, Jesus, we ask that you would unleash heaven on us even now. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, can we begin by having an honest conversation? A real one. One that goes like this. Everyone in this room wants to be great. Um, When I was in college, Tina Turner, sorry college students, do you even know who Tina Turner is? Okay. She had this song that I absolutely loved. Now, I couldn't stand any other song she did, but this one song I loved. When it came on, cranked up. When it came on, I'm belting it with all the passion and the zeal as if it's all about me. Do you remember the climactic refrain? You're simply the best. (laughs) Better than all the rest. Right? Do you remember that? Okay, that was me. Um, Everyone in this room has an honor hunger. Every one of us in this room desires greatness. Every one of you desire distinction. You desire to be separate, to separate yourself from others, to be uniquely celebrated. Every one of us. I want you to look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Peter's house, he's in Peter's house again, okay, we're back in Capernaum. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Of course they kept silent. They just got busted. I mean, Jesus is going to reveal themselves to themselves because he cares for them, because he loves them, right? And then he goes on and says, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was what? The greatest. We all want to be great. Every one of us in this room desires greatness. We have a deep, deep honor, hunger, And there are no exceptions. Now, some of you are thinking, Jeff, if you knew me, you'd know that I do not want to be great. If you know what was going on in my life, you know that I'm just trying to get through the day. I'm just trying to avoid being clinically depressed. If you knew me, you'd know that I have no aspirations for greatness. In fact, I think I'm a loser. Now, please hear me. If that is you, this is what I want to say, and I want to say it to help you and to help us and not hurt us. Uh, Feelings of inferiority, of defeat, of retreat, of a personal beatdown, those are coming from greatness in reverse. In other words, we all have a perceived notion of what honor and greatness is, and we're not meeting that standard. So there's a loss to our greatness, a loss to our honor. And when that happens in our eyes and other people's eyes, we become overwhelmed with feelings of inferiority. One author put it this way, the only difference between the person of arrogance and the person with low self-esteem is that the inferior person is lost at the game and despairs about themselves and envies those they see as winners. The superior person, though, feels as though they have, for the moment at least, won. 
And then they continually compare themselves with others because they're always checking in to see if they're still winning. End quote. Mark wants us to have an honest conversation about our hunger for honor, about our desire for greatness. How do I know he wants to do this? Here's how I know, because every time Jesus makes an outright clear cross presentation, a clear presentation of the gospel, it happens three times. It happens when Peter confesses, he has one. He has one right here and he's going to have one in 10. Every time Jesus does this and he talks about his approaching humiliation and his rejection and and his about to be killed, every time he does that, the disciples respond by, yeah, 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 but what about our greatness? What about my honor? Remember, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus goes in and fills in. Now, Peter, I want you to know what the Christ means. It means the cross. And Peter goes, no way. That's a threat to my honor. I didn't sign up to lose with you. You're supposed to bring in the kingdom. Well, what's going on here? Second time it's happening here. They're all fighting for the top position. Who's going to be the greatest, right? And then chapter 10, James and John get Jesus alone and they go for it, man. Here's what it says. Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in glory. I mean, if you're going to do it, you might as well go for it. Aim high, right? Because there is no other place of highest glory than the throne of God himself and being able to sit on the right and on the left and James go, hey, when you're there, In Mark, whenever the gospel is clearly presented, the natural human response is always, yeah, but what about my greatness? What about my hunger for honor? I want you to look at 34 again very closely. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Here's what happens. Honor hunger hurts others. It breaks our relationship up. Notice what they're doing. They're arguing with each other. It's wrecking their relationship. The disciples are arguing because they are competing with each other about who's the greatest. In order to secure, to struggle to gain worth in their lives, they are trying to be superior to one another to gain worth. Or they're trying to maintain their worth by never, ever being inferior to one another. So it's always a competition game to try to find a sense of worth by how they're doing with other people. Now, the hunger, this honor hunger makes them chronically insecure. Whether they feel like they're winning or feel like they're losing, they're still chronically insecure, always trying to find security in themselves and can't find it. It also makes them very touchy. Do you see what's happening? Can you imagine? No, you're not. You can't be the greatest because look at the color of your hair. My hair? What about my hair? Right? You can imagine the discussion they're having. I mean, what were they using for their measurements of greatness? They're all trying to be great. What were their measurements? Well, as they're saying their measurements, and you're not measuring up according to those measurements, everyone's touchy. Everyone's chronically insecure. Everyone's argumentative. Everyone's critical with everybody. And the reason they are is because they don't have a secure self. In chapter 10, when the other disciples find out about James and John's bold quest for the throne, here's what Mark records. You ready? This is unbelievable. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant. That's a Shakespearean word. I could give you the vernacular. 
but then I'd have to edit it. Oh, they're ripped. They're PO'd. All three of these power grab incidences also come immediately after what? A clear presentation of the gospel. A clear presentation of the cross. So you know what that means? In the moments when God is revealing brightly and beautifully the deepest realities of who he is, they're in a battle for honor. They're not connecting to it. And so what's happening is they're not only connecting to, not connecting to each other, they're not connecting to God. They are in a wrecked relationship with God because of their honor hunger. Mark scholar James Edwards says it this way, at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Honor, hunger wrecks us spiritually. It wrecks our relationship with God. All right, anybody, who knows who Bernie Madoff is, Bernard Madoff is? Okay. That was in the news for a long time, wasn't it? Well, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison for running a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. I had to look up what a Ponzi scheme was. I mean, everybody else is nodding like everybody else knows it. And I'm like, uh-huh, of course, of course. Okay, that is a fake investment scheme. Now, after he was caught, he was very clear about what the ultimate culprit was, what the ultimate reason was, what the ultimate course was for why he did what he did. You know what he said? My pride. Mark would say because of his honor hunger. He says that before any crime was committed, before everything went down, he said there was a lucid moment when he knew and he realized that the investments were losing money. And it was one of those lucid moments in his mind where he said, I could have and I should have reported it. But he said, I couldn't. Why? Quote, I couldn't admit my failures as a money manager. I couldn't take the blow to my greatness. In my eyes or in other people's eyes. So what did he do? He began to hide his weakness. He began to hide his errors. He began to hide his failures. You know what he began to do? He began to hide his very humanity. So he built a Ponzi scheme. And then he said he was trapped. I couldn't admit my error in judgment. And while the scheme grew, I kept thinking, I'll work my way out, I'll work my way out, and I could never get out. Honor hunger leads to relational breakdown every single time. It leads to a relational breakdown with each other. It leads to a relational breakdown with God. And it leads to a relational breakdown inside our very own beings. Now, let's keep going with this passage. There's an incredible twist in this passage, though, isn't there? It's not what we expect. Look at verse 35. It's rather shocking. Because what's happening in 35, what do you expect? After he exposes them, after he shows them what's going on in their hearts, what do you expect? You expect him to rebuke them. You expect them to, you expect him to actually reject the idea of greatness. But Jesus doesn't reject the idea of greatness here. What does he do? He redefines the idea of greatness. Look at his response. And he sat down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is saying, look, do you want to be great? I mean, do you want true honor? Serve all. 
I mean, do you want to be elite? Do you want to be uniquely celebrated? Do you want to be the top of the top? Do you want to be filled and satisfied in the depths of your being that you're satisfied with your hunger on her? Be last of all. And I don't want you to miss the scope. We can't miss the scope of this new defined greatness. Be servant of all, he's saying. Be last of all. So we got to ask ourselves, does this mean people that have different views with us on politics? Parenting. How to do church. Even our cultural preferences like Tina Turner or Coldplay or Van Halen. Be servant of all. Okay, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jeff. Are you saying, what about those who are so smug and so superior? Be last of all. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Are you talking about those that criticize us and try to control us? All. Come on. You mean those that don't even deserve it? All. While I was doing, preparing for this, I came across this quote from Plato, and I thought, gosh, that's me. Because I want to have an honest conversation. And it reflects the mindset of the ancient world, which Jesus is in right now. But I think it reflects us. This is what he said. How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? Because everybody knows happiness is being served, not serving. So what does serving look like? Let's take a slice out of life. Let's say, okay, here's what serving being last looks like. Well, look at verse 36, because Jesus tells us. In 35, he redefines greatness. In 36, he illustrates greatness. He gives us a slice of it in real life. What does he do? He takes a child, and he puts the child in the midst of them, and he takes him in his arms, and he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's stunning. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, in the ancient world, whether you're a religious person, like a Hebrew or an irreligious person like a Greek or a Roman. Children and women were on humanity's B team. Men were on the A team, especially great men. So men were always first in the ancient world. They were the first in the home. They were the first at meals. They were the first in seats of honor at worship. They were first in all the positions of authority and influence in the community. They were the first with all leadership positions. They were the first to get every economic opportunity that came their way. They were the first to indulge their personal independence and their pursuit of pleasures. In other words, we'd say stuff like this. I just want some time to myself to do some things I enjoy. They were the first that got to do that. Nobody else got to do that. When they needed something emotionally or they needed a break physically or they needed their needs met in real emotional ways or physical ways, the men were first. Always. And I can see the men out there that are now are getting really, really antsy, right? It might be that way in our homes too. Shockingly, though, to our modern ears, because we are a youth culture, right? We, we, we have a hard time picturing this, though. Children were even below women. In the ancient world, children were the last of the last in the home, in worship, whether it was Yahweh or Zeus. They were always last. And Jesus 
while he's preaching and teaching and he sees a child and he wants to illustrate what real servanthood is and what being last of all is as he grabs that child and holds that child. And they're all going. Now, children today could be the last of the last in our world. I mean, we all know that there are times where Adults demand respect and demand to be listened to and demand to be learned from and lecture, lecture, lecture and talk, talk, talk to our children, right? We demand that, but we give little of it. That could be true. Uh, But in our world, possibly the last of the last, the children in our culture could be those that struggle with mental illness, those that struggle with same-sex desires, those that are unemployed, the imprisoned, the addicted, the tattooed. It could be the lonely, the hurting, the damaged, sexually, emotionally. It could be a lot of different people. And the point here, though, is I really want us to get, y'all, it's so important. The point here is not serve like a child, be last like a child. You know what the point is? It's so beautiful, it's even hard to say. Serve like God. Be last like God. Do you want to know what it looks like to have, um, be last and to see what serving looks like in real life? to where it just kind of shines in a culture or shines in a home or shines in the community, it's, it's like God. Because God serves all. Because God is the last of all. And the call here is to take up the same mission as God. Serve all. Be the last of the last for all. Because this is how God relates to us. This is how God treats us. This is who he is. And when that happens, it's like heaven and earth collide in those moments when people serve because they are most like God. Now, honestly, when I go home today, this happens several times. I can hear my wife saying to me, this would be a good place to stop, Jeff, right here. I'm going to go forward one more point. Are y'all, there's one more key ingredient we need to get to true greatness. Because sometimes, I don't know, I mean, I, I trust my wife. She'll tell me the truth. And so when we debrief and we'll talk about sermons here and there, and she'll say, you know, honey, you could have ended about three times. Oh, okay. So I could end here. I just want you to know, I could. I have the restraint. I have the self-control. I have the ability to end this thing right now. But I choose to go forward. I choose to walk into these waters. Are you willing to go with me? Okay. See, honey? Thank you. All right. We will. Here's the point. Here's the last thing we need to know. We will never serve the last of the last. We will never serve the last of the last sacrificially, self-givingly, genuinely, graciously, honestly, not to promote ourselves and our greatness before our eyes, but for their sake. We will never serve the last of the last until we realize we 
are the last of the last. We're so spiritually weak. We're so spiritually awkward. We're so spiritually messed up. We're so spiritually unattractive that Jesus had to be delivered over into the hands of men. He had to be killed in our place. Because we're the last of the last. So Jesus had to become the last of the last to literally save us from ourselves. There's something else we need to see, though, too. He wanted to do it. I mean, it's all over this page. You see that? I mean, he knows that they're arguing about who's the greatest. You see that? Yeah, what are y'all talking about? Now, if I was Jesus, which I'm not, but if I was Jesus and I was leading a group and I was realizing what these dudes were really after, this is what I would do. It's time to find a new group. I'm going to find a new 12. These guys are history, right? He doesn't get mad at them. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't look for another 12. You know what he does? He sits down. Now in Mark, when Jesus sits, when he's in a home like he is right now, it's when God shines the brightest. It's when God gets more beautiful. It's when God gets bigger. It's when God actually draws so close to whoever he's with, it takes your breath away. And Jesus sits down and he teaches them about greatness. True greatness. Real greatness. And then to illustrate his point, he reaches over and he grabs a child. The last of the last. You and me. And then what does he do? Holds him in his arms. We will never serve the last of the last until we get that kind of love for us. In other words, the only thing that's going to satisfy your and my honor hunger is the love of Jesus. His love so honors us and his love makes us so great that the greatest being in the universe loves you. There's your value There's your secure self. There's where you're never superior and never inferior. You're just you. And then you love as you've been loved. You sacrifice as he sacrificed for you. You accept as you've been accepted. You forgive as you've been forgiven. You become the last because he became the last. You serve all. Amen.